Welcome to K-Pop. This is Jonathan Capehart. When it comes to the Constitution and President Trump's fraught relationship to it, there is no one better to talk to than Harvard Law Professor Lawrence Tribe. We got him on the phone, and we not only got into the Emoluments Clause, which I guess a lot of people used to think was just some kind of lotion, but, <laughs> yeah. but we also discuss how the fight over the current Supreme Court vacancy could impact who could leave the bench next. I bet you're dying to know who that is, and you're going to find out right now. Professor Tribe, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. I'm glad to join you, Jonathan. Your Twitter feed has been on fire. I mean, I've been following you for a long time, but I have not seen as many tweets from you as I have in the last more than a month. Um, You are very concerned about the current president and the implications of his presidency on the Constitution. Run through the list of issues that you have constitutionally with President Trump. Gee, if we had oh, we've got many, plenty of time. hours, it would be hard <laughs> to finish. I mean, it, it, it begins with the way he was elected, I suppose. I certainly accept the legality of his election, but I worry that exogenous events, maybe things that Putin did, made a problematic difference and undermined sort of the foundations of, of the presidency. But taking it as it is, I feared when he came into office that the hopes for his sort of becoming serious and sane would come true. And yet in the very short time since he's been president, all you have to do is turn away from the news for 12 minutes and you come back and some other terrible thing has happened. He's insulted Prime Minister of Australia or he has issued an executive order that was not well thought through and that was clearly unconstitutional or there are reasons to believe anyway that that people close to him have instructed customs authorities to prevent people hurt by that order from communicating with their lawyers and direct violation of the order itself and he's violating an important part of the constitution with every moment because he has streams of money coming into his already rather stuffed pockets through foreign governments in violation of the emoluments clause, which I guess a lot of people used to think was just some kind of lotion, but (laughs) a very important part of the Constitution, something that from the very beginning was designed to prevent divided loyalty on the part of our president. Uh, And he's taken attitudes toward the press and toward dissent that make one really wonder about the future of the First Amendment's free speech and free press clauses. And he's violated the Establishment Clause by instituting a religion-based ban on the entry of people into the United States. And he's got people speaking for him who make ridiculous arguments. They say it's not a Muslim ban because there are some Muslims that aren't banned, and that just is completely a bogus argument. And then occasionally moments of rationality you know, come up. I was pleased to see that he has Nikki Haley as our ambassador to the UN condemning Russia for its activities in the Ukraine and Crimea. And I was pleased to see that now that Tillerson is at state, perhaps we will begin to pursue a course that doesn't terrify the whole world. But gee, when you look at all that he's doing, it's frightening how rapidly those who want to accept the legitimacy of 
of the current regime are sort of normalizing the mm-hmm. most abnormal and erratic behavior that insults people and destabilizes their ability to rely on their basic constitutional rights. As you were talking, I was sort of remembering either it was the schoolhouse rock version of the way our government works or my many poli-sci classes at Carleton, but the president is only one, one third. The executive is only one branch of three branches of government. And with Republicans in control of the second branch, Congress, it makes me wonder, you know, they're supposed to be the check and balance. Everything's supposed to check and balance each other, but it doesn't seem like Congress is doing anything to check all of these constitutional issues that you're bringing up with the president. How worried should we be, as you just said, that Congress, instead of being a check, is opting to normalize what President Trump is doing? Well, I think we should be very worried. Worry alone won't help. We should actually put pressure on members of Congress to take their responsibilities of oversight and checking really seriously. I mean, right now, with the evidence bubbling up that maybe the third branch, the one that is really crucial in checking the political branches together, the judiciary, is being defied and ignored by the president, even though the presidency is only one branch when the legislature doesn't even investigate questions about the relationships between the White House and the Kremlin, when the idea of introducing impeachment resolutions is taken off the table by Republican leaders who think that whatever may be wrong with Trump, he's all they've got. I think we have to be terribly concerned and we have to be active in pushing hard to make sure that the entire machinery of government works in at least roughly the way that it was intended. As Ben Franklin said after the Constitutional Convention, famously, you know, this woman who said, Mr. Franklin, what have you given us here in Philadelphia? And he said, a republic, if you can keep it. It's up to us to keep it. The Constitution is a lovely parchment, and it's a beautiful document to spend one's life studying and teaching, as I have done. But unless we keep it alive in the way we conduct ourselves, politically as citizens and office holders in particular, uh, it's not going to be worth much more than the parchment it was written on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wrote a piece a, a while back sort of expressing concern about the fact that You know, again, growing up, we are taught, I was taught, that the Constitution is the foundation of our democracy. It is the foundation of the building of this country. And so the the idea that we as a country would be talking about a president who threatens the press, who threatens people who dissent, who doesn't accede to you know, federal court orders who puts together executive orders that defy the Constitution, we're reminded, or I should say, I'm reminded that our bedrock is only as powerful as the person in office who swears to uphold it. That's right. That's right. I mean, you and I, I suppose, are each preaching to the choir when we speak to each other about this, but there are still millions of people out there who presumably are aware of what he's doing and who basically say, I don't care. We knew what we were getting. We were getting a flamethrower, a Barnum and Bailey guy who entertains us and at least shakes up a system that hasn't 
been working for us. That does that not make you, yeah? Does that not make you want to tear your hair out? <laughs> well, I don't have enough to tear that much. <laughs> no. Yeah, it really bothers me, and yet I, I call me naive, but I still have deep faith that in the long run, people will come to their senses, and we'll see. I mean, I think, for example, if the evidence becomes just overwhelming that with Trump's knowledge, people accountable to him have directed defiance of the court orders that put a halt, at least temporarily, to his immigration and refugee executive orders. If people come to see that he's really defying the courts, uh, the way Nixon at one point thought of doing when he was tempted not to turn over the tapes, I think then a lot of the people who have put their faith in Trump will say, you know, we've we got we to gotta get rid of this guy. And if there is a groundswell of that kind at some point, then however asleep at the switch Congress is, they'll wake up. I mean, they want to get reelected in 2018. And I think if the pressure builds from the grassroots as it began to build in the massive and unprecedented rallies around the country, we will see some kind of response on the part of the system. Right. Now, you know, um, you talk about the groundswell, the grassroots rising up in the demonstrations, two weekends back to back, the weekend after his inauguration, the weekend after that. But those are the people who Trump supporters look at and say, oh, well, those are the disgruntled people um, who don't like him anyway. And in talking to some Democrats over the last couple weeks, one of the things they're pointing out is until Trump supporters themselves feel the impact of anything that he does, they're going to continue to think that what he's doing is the right thing and the right thing in that, well, look, this is what he said he was going to do. This is what he promised. If they don't ever come around, can that groundswell from the grassroots actually affect any of the change that you've been talking about and that I think needs to happen? Well, I suppose if I were a political scientist and could answer your question in a really deep and reliable way, rather than being kind of a mere law professor and a thinker about the Constitution, I'd feel more confident. My my hunch, and that's really all I can offer at this point, is that when his supporters who've kind of counted on him to bring back what they see as a life of opportunity, with good jobs, middle-class jobs, people who feel left behind, maybe in a year or a year and a half, if they still feel left behind, if they look around and say, look, this guy's put on a good act. He says he's building a wall. He says he's doing these things. But where are, where are the jobs? Mm-hmm. What's happened? If people start hurting in their pocketbooks and in their sense of personal worth and dignity and their ability to fulfill their dreams, then maybe they will be deeply disappointed, even those who put their eggs in the Trump basket will begin wondering. And I think that, you know, that could undermine an already rather narrow foundation that he's got. We have to remember that he did lose the popular vote by about three million, Mm -hmm. and that there are a lot of people who voted for him in a kind of Hail Mary pass. They've had their hopes, but they had their doubts. There is a hard core of support that actually likes the worst things that he's doing, I suppose. That hard core, I guess, will never go away because they are either nihilistic, they've given up on all kinds of things, 
But that hardcore is not enough to sustain a presidency. Mm -hmm. One of the things you're doing to sort of bring things into realignment is you've joined with others to bring suit over the Emoluments Clause issue. Talk about that. Right. Well, from the beginning, and actually before he became president, I started uh, writing and tweeting and doing all I could to bring attention to the fact that he apparently didn't intend to liquidate his massive assets around the world. And if he didn't do that, the result would be that foreign governments, Turkey, the Philippines, governments all over the world would be in a position to yank his string, I mean, to basically pour money into the treasury of the Trump private empire in ways that at least create the appearance and may in many instances, we can't know because of how untransparent he is, create the reality of Trump making decisions about trade deals and about all kinds of other matters of foreign policy in a way that that really benefit foreign governments and his own private business more then they benefit the American people. And the Constitution has a very specific, oddly named little provision designed to deal with that. It hasn't been the subject of much public attention since the beginning of the Republic, because other presidents have been normal in the sense that they they haven't really put themselves in this kind of conflict position. And so I worked with the, I guess you'd call them the ethics czars of the George W. Bush administration and then the Obama administration to put together a lawsuit on behalf of the citizens for ethical responsibility in Washington, a group called Crew, suing Donald Trump in his presidential capacity. We filed the suit as soon as we could, namely on the first working day of his administration, arguing in some detail that he is violating this important constitutional provision day in and day out. Now, all we're seeking is an order from the court to make him comply with that provision, which he can't do unless he liquidates his assets and puts the resulting cash, basically, in a genuine, independently run blind trust. Our objective is to make him do that so that at least that source of difficulty with this administration would be gone. But I'm not sure he'll ever comply. And Mm -hmm. if a court does order him to do it and he defies the order, then no one can doubt that that would be an impeachable offense. Is this the kind of case that he could take all the way to the Supreme Court to try to stop you from making him sell all of his assets? He will certainly try to push it as far as possible, and so will we. I mean, we'll see him in court, and I don't have any doubt that this is an issue that in all likelihood will end up before the Supreme Court. And I have no doubt that our argument is extremely solid and that conservative as well as liberal justices are likely to see its merit. In the old days, I would sit back and think, you know what, Professor Tribe is right. that It'll go to the Supreme Court and they are going to look at it, you know, because of the law dispassionately and the facts are what they are and things will things will be all right. But these days, especially with what happened to the nomination of Judge Merrick Garland and what happened with that, I have to say that my my faith in the Supreme Court to do the right thing is not there. Well, let me let me address that, starting with Merrick Garland. I think it was an outrage for the Senate to abdicate its constitutional responsibility and refuse to even consider his nomination on the stupid ground that Barack Obama had already finished three years of his second term. 
that was wrong. But it wasn't the Supreme Court that bore any responsibility for that. So I wouldn't say that that shows the court can't do its job. It mm-hmm. is true that ever since Bush v. Gore, and with a lot of controversial cases, lots of people, as part of their general loss of faith in elite institutions, uh, are having a harder time expecting the Supreme Court to act like lawyers and judges rather than like politicians. But in a book that I wrote with my former student and very brilliant colleague Joshua Matz a couple of years ago called Uncertain Justice, the Roberts Court and the Constitution, I try to show that even though, of course, politics and law at the Supreme Court are twins, they embrace each other the way twins would. They're both deeply involved. Nothing is completely apolitical. But nonetheless, there are enough departures in the court and continue to be from a purely partisan alignment that we shouldn't lose faith completely. Then when push comes to shove, and I now have to go back a little time in history, the court will often draw the line against a president who really appointed many of its key justices. When the court in the Nixon tapes case basically forced the president to turn over the tapes and ensure that he would no longer be allowed to remain in office, there were people who voted strongly against the person who had appointed them. Take take Neil Gorsuch. I mean, there are a lot of things to be said about him. He's brilliant. He's got a great mind. He's, he knows law inside and out. I think he's a person of integrity and thoughtfulness, much more conservative than, than I would favor. But one of his conservative principles is holding the executive branch to the law and imposing the rule of law on the executive. I don't think he will be a sure vote in Donald Trump's pocket, that's for sure. And if Trump violates the Constitution, I think Gorsuch, along with the Chief Justice and a majority of the court, even if they aren't happy about it, are going to, are going to call him on it. Your faith in the court restores my faith in the court. I hope that whatever happens with with your case and other cases that are that are going to be brought against this president and this administration that other people will have their faith in the courts maintained and sustained because at this point i think for a lot of people all of the courts are the the last refuge considering that congress just isn't doing anything as you right. said they're normalizing this Right. The independent judiciary really is our last best hope in terms of enforcing the rule of law and protecting vulnerable values and vulnerable groups from from those in positions of power. You know, I can't say that I'm absolutely sure the courts will perform that function. Not going to bet my life on it, Mm -hmm. but I'm much more confident than I think some people are. Professor Tripe, why haven't the courts completely knocked out President Trump's executive order on refugees and and immigration, considering that we all know it's a ban on Muslims entering the country. And that's a violation of our Constitution, isn't it? Is it not? Well, I do think it's a violation of the Constitution, but the courts have their own processes. The best they could do under these circumstances before there's a real hearing on the merits is to freeze those orders. And they have basically done that nationwide. The stories now are about a potential executive order on religious freedom that goes so far beyond what anyone would expect. And while the Trump administration 
took a lot of credit for keeping in place executive orders by uh, President Obama to protect, for instance, to protect uh, LGBT federal contractors from discrimination. This proposed executive order, the draft of which has been has been going all over the place, everyone knows about it now, would completely supersede any other executive order and would basically, not basically, it would allow anyone to discriminate against anyone based on a whole host of issues, including sexual orientation and gender identity, because the person believes that it violates their religious beliefs. It's outrageous. I mean, it seems to me that it's a thinly disguised license to discriminate. It, it gives the government's blessing to the abuse of religious claims, not simply their use, but their abuse, not just as a shield, but as a sword uh, to sort of cut through other people's rights. So now Judge Gorsuch has been nominated to fill the seat of the late Justice Antonin Scalia. How many other Supreme Court seats do you think President Trump will have to fill going forward? you know, I don't want to be ghoulish, but age takes its toll. And there are justices who are nearing or passing the age of 80. Um, It's not a secret that that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the oldest of the justices, is somebody who, you know, may not hang on forever. Anthony Kennedy, for whom Gorsuch clerked, is somebody who at some point may decide to spend more time with his grandchildren, leave the court. Justice Breyer, too, has... uh, is aging. Mm-hmm. So there could be three in the wings. And I think the interesting thing is that there's a relationship between how the Gorsuch nomination is handled and the decisions to be made by someone like Justice Kennedy. I mean, Kennedy doesn't, he's a, a guy who believes in calm, peaceful transition. He's often expressed frustration at the paralysis in Congress and at the chaos in the streets. I think if the Democrats were to hold their fire and say, okay, we'll let Gorsuch through, we won't insist on 60 votes, and if Gorsuch is peaceably put on the court, Kennedy may think it's safe to leave. Hmm. And I think that would be quite terrible. I think, on the other hand, if the Democrats, having conceded privately and otherwise that Gorsuch, in an ideal world, would be a perfectly good nominee, they say it's a stolen seat, we're not going to stand for it, we're going to insist on 60 votes. They may well lose anyway, but they will lose in a blaze of fire that I think will give Kennedy pause about leaving sooner. And so, you know, I think both sides need to play four-dimensional chess here. Mm-hmm. They need to recognize that they are making a decision not just about one person and one seat, important as that is in the future, but they're making a decision that may affect the behavior of sitting justices going forward. Now, earlier in our conversation, you humbly described yourself as a mere law professor. I mean, you're a mere law professor uh, at Harvard, Harvard Law School. But you are, as I, as I said to my trusty podcast producer, Carol, as I tried to explain to her your importance in, in law and in constitutional law, I described you as the Beyonce of constitutional law <laughs> professors, and she got it. She she instantly got it. But like Beyonce, yeah, I, just, I just, have to say that. But I, I I would disclaim any any such halo. 
<laughs> well, okay, you can you can disclaim the, the halo, but how many how many senators and presidents have you taught? And by that I mean well, who have gone on to those positions. Well, the only president who was a student of mine was Barack Obama, and he was a terrific student and my main research assistant for a couple of years. John Roberts, the Chief Justice, was an excellent student of mine. Elena Kagan was my research assistant and a terrific one. The number of senators, I'm not sure I haven't counted. I mean, Larry Pressler of South Dakota, a former senator, was one of my students. Lots of members of Congress, like Adam Schiff, and before him, Barney Frank, and, and a, lot of, a lot of people. I mean, I've been very fortunate in teaching a course that lots of very talented Harvard Law students want to take. Is, was Senator Cruz one of your your students? Yes, he was. He was he was a student. I can't say too much about how proud of him I am. I was going to say, um, it's like, where did I go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> well, you see, that that's a good reminder that just because somebody is your student doesn't mean that, that they're going to share your values. I make a real effort when I teach not to proselytize and not to, I mean, I, you know, grade things blind and I try to ask questions that, that don't depend on somebody's ideology, but, but on their ability to carry on the enterprise of legal analysis really well. So, so given what you've seen of your, of your former student, what kind of grade would you give him? Well, I don't know. I, I'm glad that we no longer have quite the same numerical grading system that we used to have and no more A pluses and A's. It's all honors, pass, fail. I, I think I'd have to give him an honors, no question, in, term, in terms of his command of the law. He's a very good lawyer. Um, in terms of his values, I would not undertake to grade them, but they're sure different from mine. Now, you've mentioned uh, President Obama was a, a researcher for you. Um, Justice Kagan was a researcher for you. Chief Justice Roberts was a student of yours. Is there a, anyone working with you now, meaning a, a student like they were, who you are keeping your eye on because you just know that he or she is going to end up in the Senate, on the Supreme Court, or in the White House? Or as a really influential professor somewhere. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't rule that out. No, there are, there are several. I mean, in the last 10 or 15 years, I've had several, and in the last five years, I've had several. I wouldn't want to hurt their careers by naming them, but there are some people who I certainly think have enormously important and influential futures ahead of them. Does that give you, give you hope for the future? Absolutely. I mean, and not just the ones that you will hear about as senators or as future presidents. There's so many. I mean, I've taught thousands of students over the years, and I'm so proud of many of them that nobody's ever heard of. They're doing pro bono work for refugees and immigrants and for the victims of gay bashing and for racial minorities and for people who are unjustly convicted. Some of them in the corporate world are doing work that that combines their conscience with their with their pocketbooks and I'm proud of many of them. I've, some of, you know, my best, my best friends come in many cases from students I've taught years and years ago, and I'm sometimes you know, teaching their children. I mean, right now in a seminar, I have a young woman who's very impressive, whose dad was a wonderful student of mine and is on the federal bench. It's, uh, it, it's great to see all of that happening. It's like having 
thousands of children go out in the world and they do they do their thing, but it's wonderful to see them fly on their own. Harvard Law Professor Lawrence Tribe, the Beyonce of constitutional law professors. I cannot thank you enough for being on the podcast today. Thank you, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. You know what? Do me a favor. Subscribe and then rate and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. 